0: All right, so I get to start this morning doing something fun. I get to give away some freebies. Who wants something free? Really? (laughs) Y'all afraid I'm gonna try to sell you something? Yeah, nothing? No, no, we're just giving it away. There are, however, some stipulations you need to have a kid in your home presently, who is at least 16 years old or older, or they've already moved out of the house. That would actually be the preferred one because we do have a limited number of these, but we want to give them to you for free as long as they're out there. So you go through the door there, and to the left, you're going to see the small group table. That's where you're going to find a book by Jim Burns called Doing Life with Your Adult Children. Who has adult children besides me? Yeah, there's not that many books out there. So just... You may want to snap a picture of this. No fighting out there, okay? Uh, But you, you really want to pick this up. Michelle Walls, one of our deacons, actually recommended this to me, I think, like two weeks ago. It came on the Amazon truck, or as my wife likes to affectionately call it, the fun wagon, on Monday morning. And I was 90 pages into it by Monday night and now we're going to give it away to you for free. That's what I think. I read a lot of books, and I don't I react that way to a lot of them, but I think for so many of you, particularly around the subject matter that we're going to talk about today, you're going to find this incredibly helpful. He is a therapist, but he doesn't speak as a therapist. He speaks as a father, and a grandfather is sort of like you're sitting in his living room, and he's just telling you stories, and, and you learn just some general practical wisdom around a lot of what we're going to talk about today. We've been in this series called Release the Arrows. So at every stage of development, from diapers all the way to adulthood, how do you raise your children? How do you do that for the glory of God? How do you do it in a way that best reflects the metaphor that the 127th Psalm gives us that says that arrows of your children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior? And today, we're going to switch gears a little bit to talk about a hard subject. It's one of the things I love about this church. Y'all have never fired me yet for talking about hard subjects. I love you for that. I love you because that's a reflection that you want to grow. You don't want to avoid hard subjects. This is one of those. It's going to be a little bit heavy today, especially for those of you who may be feeling a little of what I'm going to be talking about. But it's necessary because God has a word for you today, particularly if you're the parent of an adult or an almost adult child, and you can look back and rack your brain, and you're like, I think I did everything I was supposed to do. I certainly was not perfect. Pastor, this has not turned out the way I thought it would turn out. You're not alone. In fact, one of the more depressing stories in the scriptures, Kathy just read to you at the outset of our time together. It's in 2 Samuel. Seven chapters it takes to tell this whole story, starting in chapter 13, uh, terminating in chapter 19. And the, the central figure, she called his name, Absalom. He's the son of King David. He's born in Hebron, which means that he was born before his father moved the capital city to Jerusalem. And so he witnessed many of his father's greatest accomplishments, including establishing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And he himself has all of this personal attraction. Bible says he was handsome. I don't know if that's because there were a lot of ugly people in the Bible, or if he was just a particularly good-looking guy, but he stood out among the rest. He was charming, endearing, charismatic. He was also a galvanizing leader, as we'll find out later in this story, and he emerges as the favorite of his father, the king. But something happened early in this story that would trigger Absalom to become a rebellious child, and when you get into the weeds of this, you're like, okay, was this the father's fault? Was this the son's fault? And you're like, oh my gosh, this is such a gosh-awful mess. You can't even tell who's who's to be blamed for what. but but it starts in the king's own palace. See, Absalom had a sister named Tamar and he had a half-brother named Amnon. And Amnon fakes sickness on one occasion to get his half-sister into the bedroom to care for him. And there's the place where he overpowers her and rapes his half-sister. Well, Absalom, when he finds this out, is enraged. He tells King David, his father, the father of this woman who's been raped is also enraged, but ultimately he does nothing about the sexual assault of his own daughter. And Absalom is so enraged that he awaits, he waits very patiently for about two years until he has just the right opportunity that comes along, and he sends men to murder Amnon while he's drunk. But somehow that didn't fix the rage that he felt. And over time, this rebellion is going to turn from the personal to the national as Absalom raises an army against his own father. And all this culminates in the battle of Ephraim Wood. That's the text that Kathy read for you. And David's general, Joab, finds Absalom trapped in a tree, kills him with a spear, and the reaction of the king, we read that at the outset as well, is the most visceral of reactions. We see it in 2 Samuel 18. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. You're not alone in your grief. And neither was David. Because if you back up several years prior to this moment, you find the story in 1 Samuel of another father. His name is Eli. And Eli has a couple of sons. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And they're supposed to follow in their father's footsteps as priests but they're using the office and the power and even their father's own lineage for their own advantage. They're taking the prime cuts of meat that were donated for sacrifice to the Lord and they're consuming that themselves. They're committing adultery with the women at the sanctuary entrance. And meanwhile, Eli has taken in this young boy named Samuel. And Samuel at a very young age is called by God to go to Eli and to tell him your sons are going to be killed in battle with the Philistines. And the Ark of the Covenant, that central piece of furniture at that time in the tabernacle that symbolized the presence of God with his people is going to be taken as a spoil of war. And these wicked men continue their evil behavior. In spite of that prophecy, and we read the exasperated words of another father in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I heard of your evil dealings from all of these people. David and Eli are also not alone. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us another story. And though not historical, it certainly would have reflected a reality for a lot of parents in the first century. There's a man who has two sons. And the younger of them goes to him and says, Father, give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait until you die. I want it now. And culturally, in the first century, that was a way of saying two highly insulting things to your daddy. Number one, I value the inheritance that's coming more than I value my relationship with you, which means it's all the same to me if you were already dead. That's what he tells his daddy. And his father grants the wish. He goes off and we see the Fruit of his rebellion in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now I could go on and on and on because there are more than just these stories, but we've already seen, haven't we, in just like four minutes here, three parents, four lost children. I would imagine that there are people in front of me right now who can relate. I also suspect there's a few of you that your kids are still in diapers and you mean well and I love you, but you're sitting there reaffirmed in what you think and your path and all those guardrails that you've set up, everything you're going to do and the previous generation doesn't have the knowledge that you have and you're like, not going to happen with my kid. And what I fear is that for some of you, you got a big shock coming. Because it doesn't always work the the way you think it's going to. It it just doesn't. And and for many of you, there's a scripture verse that is haunting you right now. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And even as I read it, you're cringing just a little bit. You read that, and what you've heard God saying maybe your whole life is, God, if you'll just do this right, do that right, get that right, your kid will turn out okay. And maybe you even had well-meaning brothers and sisters when the kids started rebelling, and they came around you, and they said, well, you you just need to do this. You just need to do that. They're like Job's friends, right? They're well-meaning but stupid. All right? That, that was Elphaz. that was Bildad, that was Zophar in the st- story of Job. Hey, let me tell you why you're suffering. Don't you tell me why I'm suffering. Step in here with your philosophy. You know nothing. And you would be more annoyed by those words, as trite as they are, if as a parent watching your child walk away from the faith, maybe walk away from you or whatever, you, you weren't also simultaneously terrified that they might be true. Have I done something wrong? Have I been the cause of this? Proverbs 22, six certainly seems to suggest that that's possible. And and so today, even throughout this series, you've been thinking of your rebellious son or daughter in every message I've preached. And if you're still here, bless you for continuing to come, because you're wondering, what did I do wrong? So let me, let me say a couple things to you at the outset if that's you, okay? Or if that's not you and you're thinking, never going to be me, put this one in the file in case you need it in 10 years, okay? First thing I want to tell you is this. Proverbs is not a book of promises, okay? Some of you own something called the Bible Promise Book and you need to go home and set it on fire. Let me tell you why. Because most of what's in there is the Proverbs and that's not the way Proverbs is intended to be interpreted. That is not what the Holy Spirit inspired author of Proverbs is intending to communicate and the Lord's name is being taken in vain in such resources. And and the chief evidence of that is you've taken something as a promise and now you're living thinking, well, wow, God promised me this and now this hasn't turned out this way because God didn't promise you that. Proverbs is full of wisdom, wisdom, principles. It means this. It is absolutely true that if you will employ the principles found in this book, you will be much more likely to prosper. Your children, your progeny after you will be much more likely to prosper. It is also true that if you ignore God's word, the chances are much, much higher that either you or your child will meet with an end that is not preferable. But nowhere in there and nowhere else in scripture, actually, particularly regarding parenting, Is there any kind of thing that resembles a guarantee? It's just not there. And so when you say, what did I do wrong? Well, maybe nothing. Maybe nothing. Here's the second thing I want to tell you, that in many cases of rebellious children, and I'm not saying this to take all the blame off of mom and dad, but I want you to consider this. In many cases where a child rebels, it's not because of something the parent did wrong it's because the child rebelled. Okay. Proverbs 13, one, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. There is absolutely a mandate for parents to train them up. There is equal warning in case there's any kids listening to me, especially the teenage years or older, equal warning for you to heed that instruction and additional warning that there are lifelong consequences to ignoring the very wisdom that God gives you through your mom and dad. Sometimes it's not your fault, mom and dad. In fact, this was so ingrained in early Jewish society that we read the following in Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother and all the people shall say amen. Okay. Under the old covenant, you go to Deuteronomy 21 this afternoon and look this up. In fact, if if you're a teen, look, look this up, Deuteronomy 21. If, if there was someone living under their parents' roof, being consistently rebellious, it was permissible under that, under, under that community to bring that person to the elders of the community and in the most extreme cases of rebellion for the elders to prescribe that that son be stoned to death by the community. Deuteronomy 21, 21, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear in fear. Now, just in case there's some parents going, you can't do that anymore, okay? You, you can't do that, all right? There's a new covenant. It has replaced the old, all right? But there's some principles embedded in those particular commands that are clear. Sometimes when there is unrepentant, damaging sin in the life of the child, it is, in fact, the child's fault, period. So when you go back and examine in detail these heartbreaking stories of scripture, here, here's what you find. Okay? You find, number one, this will blow you away, parents weren't perfect. They, they blew it. They made some mistakes. You discover in some cases that, yes, they did contribute to dysfunction. King David, good Lord, you think you can do that? You think you can call a woman over, use your power to sexually take advantage of her, get her pregnant, have her husband murdered, try to cover that up, and somehow everything's going to be hunky-dory with your family? It doesn't matter to the king. There's a price to pay for that, right? And so the consequences, that the sin on the part of the parent transferred generationally. It manifested itself in dysfunction in subsequent generations in David's family. And then there's other times you find that in spite of a parent's best, best efforts, kid goes completely off the rails. So so here's my premise for the rest of this message. If you and I were sitting in my study together, or we were sitting in my living room together, having coffee or wherever, sitting on my deck like I was with a bunch of guys the other night with cigar smoke boiling, and you say, pastor, what did I do? My honest answer is, I really don't know. I don't. But here are two things I do know. I know that there is nothing redemptive in sitting there and beating yourself up over it. Nothing. That's not going to change anything. Listen, if there has been dysfunction in your life and you can trace that back and you see how it affected your kids, repent of it, acknowledge it before your children, tell your kids. All right. Too many parents refuse to apologize to their kids because they think it makes them look weak and your kids already know you're weak, you may as well admit it. Just tell them, I'm sorry. This was the, and be specific about it. Don't, don't apologize until you have something to apologize for, right? Like this, this is what I did. And, and, and then repent of that. And then give it to Jesus who died for it and live in the freedom that the gospel affords you as a parent who's not perfect, okay? Here's the second thing. There are some things, whether it was your fault, whether it wasn't your fault, whether there was a lot of goo in the mix and you don't know who's responsible for what, starting right now, there are four action steps you can take. And again, like many other action steps in Scripture, there's not a guaranteed outcome here. This is simply being faithful. One of the more sobering passages of scriptures in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, you get to the latter end of that and you see all these great saints of old. You see Moses, you see Abraham, you see the prophets, you see Elijah, you see all these people. And then at the end, you see this contrasting set of verses. One says that there were some who, who put armies to flight and they stopped the mouths of lions and they did this and they did that. And then almost turns on a dime and the very next verse says, and some were sawn in two. And some were persecuted and stoned to death, and some were. There's no guaranteed outcome short of the glorious eternity that God has promised you, and me. But there is the expectation to do what's right, no matter what it costs you. That's what I'm giving you today, and to lay down on your pillow at night, knowing, by the power of the Spirit, did the best I could. And you know what? God is gracious. I'm going to sleep tonight. I wonder how many parents just haven't slept in a while. You know, if if a few of you just get a good night's sleep tonight, I will consider these few moments well spent. I really will. Let me give you these four action steps. Number one, just relinquish the guilt. Okay. And by that, I mean the guilty feeling. Guilt is playing an increasing role in parenting. Parents piling on one another is playing an increasing role. In parenting piling on even more is that we have access to so much more information don't we now information is not all bad I told you at the outset of this this sermon series together you go, go ahead read all the books you can information is power do it but but hold it up against your own child and what's working and what's not working the, the problem is you, you get all this information and there's a particular school of thought that you decide to adopt with a child like we did when our first one was born we did that too. We read contrasting philosophies. We said, this one kind of makes more sense. And then we just sort of went with that one and things seem to be turning out okay. But, but you know what I've learned? I've learned that that typically you'll, you'll do a lot of research and you'll say, okay, option A, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set these guardrails up and we're going to take this process to You know whether we breastfeed or not and what kind of ways we're going to educate them and when they start learning how to read whether or not we're going to use phonics you know all these kinds of decisions that you you need to make as a parent and and then by the time your child gets to the next stage of their life have you noticed all the psychologists and the sociologists and the social workers and the mommy bloggers have pulled a 180 back in this prior stage And they're like, you know, Option A, we've done a lot of historical research on Option A, and Option A was horrible. Don't do that to your child. And you're like, too late. They're already there. Like, what do I do about that? Right? And what do you do? What do you do? Moms, you put that on yourself, don't you? Stop doing that. There's no, I, I know your intent is good. I know it is. You are not honoring the Lord when you do that. And you're not honoring your child when you go back and you just obsess over that kind of thing. Every failure in your kid's life, you project that back on yourself. Dads as well. It doesn't start as early with us, typically. But if a child grows up to rebel, that guilt finally, man, it hits dad and it is just as acute. And if you belong to Jesus, remember these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You go home tonight, you you rest with those words in your head because the starting point for dealing with life as you are experiencing it now is to understand that your sins are forgiven. They're gone. And that your child's sins can be forgiven. God does not want any of us wallowing around in guilt and shame and that's especially true, by the way, if the fault doesn't lay on you to begin with. Even if you are partly to blame. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, who, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That promise is for you and for your rebellious child. So you've got to relinquish the guilt. Live in the grace of God. And I'm telling you, when you start to live in grace, you're going to notice something different. Your child is gonna notice something different. So relinquish the guilt. Number two, stand your ground, stand your ground. We think that there are two statements that are mutually exclusive from one another and can never be said in the same breath. I'm about to say them in the same breath, and I'm giving you permission right now, and it's not just your pastor saying it's okay, it's God's word saying it's okay to say all of the following to your child in the same breath. You ready for this? That action, choice, decision will always be wrong, and I will always love you. You can do that. Well, how could you? Wait a minute. I'm not just supposed to affirm, no, no. We have an older lady who's a dear friend of my family. Her adult son, who's just a little bit older than me, was a widower, lost his first wife to cancer. He finds this other lady. He brings her home to mom. He wants to marry her. And she's an otherwise delightful woman, but she's not a follower of Jesus. She's an adherent to another religion. And this lady that I know looked at her son I love her. I love you. You guys are always welcome here. But this isn't right. And son, you know it isn't right. And he said, my age. Mom, I just thought you'd be glad that I'm happy. You ever heard your kids say that? I just thought you'd be glad that I'm happy. And this woman, who's now in her 80s, said, your happiness or hers don't mean a whole lot if she ends up in hell. Now, was there a more winsome way that maybe she could have said that? Probably. Probably. Yeah. But what was she doing in that moment? That she's, yeah, granted, she should learn maybe how to do that better, but she loved her son enough not to keep that from him. This is both countercultural and counterintuitive to us because we've been conditioned to think in our culture that the highest value is tolerance, acceptance. Listen, let me define tolerance for you, because tolerance should be a really high value, okay? Tolerance is the power that keeps lovers of competing ideas from killing each other. That's what tolerance is, and it's good. It's a good value, okay? You're going to have people, as we get closer to the next election, on the right and on the left, that tell you how horrible tolerance is. Tolerance is a good thing until you start defining it as something that it's not, like, well, it always means that i got to affirm everything. It means i got to agree with everything. It means I've got to celebrate everything. It means if I don't hit the like button on that, somebody's going to think I hate them. And what that kind of tolerance is doing to our culture, to our families, it's, it's, it's ripping us apart. It's absolutely ripping us apart. Don't ever, 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 ever make somebody feel uncomfortable with the choice we make, especially our children. Maybe that's what you're thinking. But pastor, these are my kids. Listen to these words from Jesus in Luke 12. Sometimes we, you hear Christians talk like that. Man, the prophets, man, they were always mad about something. Paul sometimes is like he was constipated or something when he wrote. But Jesus, Jesus was always a total sweetheart. I don't know. Listen to these words from Jesus. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided. Father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother-in-law and against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's harsh. That's harsh. So, let me, let me put this in sort of the nitty-gritty kind of everyday thing. When that adult child comes home this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, with their live-in boyfriend, girlfriend, do you prepare one bedroom or two? You say, well, I don't have two bedrooms. There's these things called air mattresses. Um, Now, listen, I'm not, listen, this isn't, I understand, emotionally, this can be an almost impossible decision. I'm not trying to judge you or point my finger at you if you've ever allowed something like that, but I do want you to start thinking about this a little bit more deeply. Would you rather them just be happy with you and have peace in the family and leave for the new year in their minds thinking, you know what, fornication must just not be that big of a deal. Mom and dad never even brought it up. See, there's a balance. You, you, you don't have to go the entire holiday and never talk about hard stuff with your kid. You also don't have to go the whole holiday talking about nothing but the hard stuff with your kid. Y'all getting this? Right? It, you, you bring this up. Can you endure the anger that erupts that has underneath it a pricking of the conscience? You're know, like, well, I, I wanna respect their decisions. Well, listen. Respect is a door that swings both ways. It's a door that swings both ways. We understand this in almost every other area of life. You all know we have dear friends of this community who do not follow Jesus. There are Jewish friends, our Muslim friends. Some of those rabbis and imams are dear friends of mine, and I love them. So let's just say for a moment, one of them invites me into their home. Amy and I spend the night. We get up the next morning, and, and somehow I get it in my head, the presumption, not only that I have the right to walk into their kitchen and fix my own breakfast without their permission, but The first thing I do is drop a big old slab of bacon right on the stove. How's that going to go over in a Jewish household, in a Muslim household, right? Not, not very well. Who do you think's wrong in that? Yeah, this is not a trick question, is it right now? You've been around here longer, 15 minutes. You know, I love me some bacon. Is it wrong to have bacon? No, it's not. Praise the Lord for the new covenant. We just celebrated it here. I get that bacon is not the main point, but oh my goodness, what beautiful icing it is on that cake, isn't it? I don't think there's anything wrong, but I'm under the roof of someone else who feels differently about it. And I think pretty much anybody in this room that has a brain the size of a peanut and a little bit of common sense would say, Pastor Joel, that's way out of line and you would not respond well to me if I said, well, they should just respect my choices they do respect your choices. When you're cooking pig on your own stove. See, this this is just basic manners, one-on-one. You not only get a chance to, to introduce your child, once again, to the consequences of certain kinds of moral choices, but this is another lesson in mutual respect. It swings both ways. Some of you have adult children who are enslaved to addiction. Our friends at the Hope Dealer Project, every single one of them, the mother of a recovering addict or a a mom of a child who's died from their addiction will tell you this, if you ain't making them mad, you ain't doing it right. They echo the words of Jesus here. He's saying, for some of you, you have children who rebel, and here's, here's what you need to understand. They're not really rebelling against you. They're rebelling against me. And you need to love them the way I love them, but there are times when it comes to talk about the truth when you're gonna to have to decide whether you're gonna stand with them or whether you're gonna stand with me that's hard isn't it that's hard does it mean you let go of your love absolutely not we're gonna talk about just in just a moment but it does mean you got to remember who your Lord is who is your God there are times when the choice is clear relinquish the guilt that you feel stand your ground with your child thirdly continue to love again absolutely nothing mutually exclusive about saying that choice action thing is always wrong and I will always love you. And we see that in Luke 15. This rebellious son has dishonored his father in the ultimate way. He has just wasted away one third of his father's household. He smells like pigs and cognac maybe. And he says to himself, my father's household slaves are better than this. They do better than this. Maybe I can go back. And then we read this in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see that posture of a loving parent? This desire for your child's good, my children's good, it never goes away. Your heart's going to remain broken for them. Why do you think this dad was able to see him from a long way off? This is something not explicitly spelled out in the scripture, but, but I don't have to read it in the scripture to know this is how it probably happened because I'm a daddy. I figure I know how it happened. Every evening when the work got done, every morning when he got up before the work started, he went to his property line as far north and as far south and as far east and as far west as he possibly could have. And he looked as far as his naked eye would let him look with one overwhelming obsessed question on his mind. Where's my boy? I hope he's okay. That's the love of a parent. You can and you should stand your ground while you still demonstrate that love. There's a story in this Burns book that I'm yeah, we're recommending to you this week about one of Billy Graham's adult daughters. A few years into her marriage, she discovered that her husband, who was actually on Graham's staff at the time, was just involved in multiple affairs. She divorced him. Less than a year later, she's in another relationship. Mom and dad, we're talking like you, you think, well, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Think about Billy and Ruth Graham, okay? Trying to warn their adult daughter, this is a rebound. This is a rebound, sweetheart. You don't need to do this. She does it anyway. They made their disapproval known. They continued to love. Turned out that, that too was a toxic, actually physically abusive relationship when she finally felt like she just needed to get away, she didn't have another choice, and wondering where she's going to go. She called Black Mountain, North Carolina, where her father and her mother were. And the story goes, as she's driving up, wondering what's going to be said, what's going to happen, what are they going to be expectations? what are going to be the lectures, what are they going to be There's Billy Graham, her father, waiting for her, not at the front door, at the gate of the property. And he hugs her and simply says, Welcome home, honey. Welcome home. Continue to love them just like that. No matter what they do, no matter how far they stray, no matter how painful they make your life, Stand your ground, okay? By the way, that applies to money, too. Don't be continually shelling this stuff out. You're going to run yourself broke and not be able to retire comfortably while they're fueling some kind of addictive crap, all right? That's not love. That's enablement. Stop that. That's also in the stand your ground. But it's never mutually exclusive from unconditional love. This is no, there's no more way to prove your love to a child than when you act that way at their most rebellious moments. And by the way, that should be true in the church as well. When I discover someone has a kid who's among our elders, our deacons, our staff, and they're struggling, or they've just out and out rebelled and walked away, it's my normal practice. I ask for that kid's cell number, and I text them privately. And a lot of times I don't hear back ever. Sometimes I don't hear back for months. Sometimes I don't hear back for weeks. And I don't do it. Now, the value of that just put hopefully y'all understand there's there's like 8, 900 people at this church. Everybody can't have my private cell number. I hope y'all get that, right? Cuz all I'd be doing is answering texts all day long. Those kids get it. You know why? Cuz those are members of my team and I know what's going on in their heart. And I know the struggle, and I know the love, and I know the desire. And and I, I may or may not know the kid, but here's what I want the kid to know. Your pastor loves you. I'm praying for you. I'm here if you need anything. You do not have to respond until and unless you are ready. But if and when you are ready, I am here and I am for you. Because God forbid if one of my kids goes off the rails one day, I want members of my team doing that exact same thing. This is what we do, right? This is how we are the church. We demonstrate that unconditional love, not just in our own individual families, but as a larger faith family. And when we do it, we are most like our Heavenly Father that's reflected in that story in Luke 15, who waited on us, was patient with us, refused to ultimately condemn or give up on us, and pursued us until we came home. That's our Heavenly Father. So relinquish the guilt, stand your ground, continue to love. Here's the final one. This will be the hardest one, but this is where the liberty comes from. Give them to God. Give them to God. See, part of what drives your guilt is that you're wearing a burden you were never meant to wear. See, we, we know this intuitively when we talk with our children about Jesus, or at least I hope you do. I hope you should. Every one of my children has heard that from me, especially right up until and at their baptism. Because let me tell you something about preachers' kids. They grew up, they grow up in the house of a pastor. So they learn the language. They hear me preach. They probably hear me talking to myself while I'm putting a sermon together in my study at home. They they know the lingo, be really, really easy for them to think that there's some pretty long coattails there. I'll just hop on to dad. And that needs to be something we talk about with all our kids. God doesn't have grandchildren, He has children. You're not getting into heaven on daddy's coattails. This is your faith, your decision to give your life over to Jesus. And that's true of every one of your kids. Well, when they choose to run from God, it's hard for us to believe that, isn't it? Isn't it harder for us to believe our own words when we see them do something not very bright? Remember something we learned in the very first week in this series. Our children are not ultimately ours. They belong to the Lord. So give them back to him. Give them back to him. And remember, when you do it, that this is the same God who took a terrorist named Saul of Tarsus and used him to be the first global missionary to the world and to write half of our New Testament. This is the same God that took an adulterous guy who pimped out his own wife named Abraham, a deceiving trickster like Jacob, an adulterous murderer like David, to bring about his purposes and to bring those rebels to himself. What was true of those people is true of me, it's true of you, and it's also true of your children. You can't save your children. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth has an arm that is not too short to save. So give them to him. If you feel like you're currently raising an Absalom or you're watching Hophni and Phinehas run around like wild Indians, do the same thing that I hope you did when they were little. And even if you didn't, do this again. Pray the promises of the new covenant over them. Listen to these words in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to give you a different want to. You're not, this isn't going to feel forced. I'm going to crush that hard, rotten, hell-bound, sinful heart. I'm going to give you a new one. God did that for Saul of Tarsus. God did that for Abraham. God did that for David. God did that for the Philippian jailer. God can do that for your kid. So pray that. Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Paul would express it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Notice this. Got a rebellious kid at home? God reconciled you to to himself. He gives you the ministry of reconciliation. That's what it looks like to give your kids to God. From the time you bring them home, put them in that crib for the very first time, you go to your knees on that crib, you put your hands on that child, you pray those words, and you just say, God, just do this for my son. Do this for my daughter. And you can do that now. We will pray that with you. When they grow up and willfully rebel, when addiction enslaves them, sexual sin gives them this false high of happiness and contentment. When they chase fortune and fame rather than the Lord, remember these words and pray them and ask the Lord to do it for you. And church, let's, let's stand behind these moms and dads, these grandparents, these single parents, these guardians, these foster parents. Don't, don't lecture them. Don't be like Eliphaz. Bildad and Zophar in the book of Job. Yeah, three things you need to say. I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm praying for you. You just, just say those things over and over and over again. And when you're tempted to have some kind of word of wisdom, shut up. Okay? Because 99 times out of 100, that ain't the Holy Ghost. That was bad pizza the night before. And you're not going to do anybody any good. I just got a word for you. If it's not this, you have no guarantee. This is the word of the Lord. I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm so sorry. And then maybe adding on to that, is there a way I can help you? Is there a way? And then just sit there. You're like, but that doesn't fix anything. No, oftentimes it won't. But the point is not to fix stuff. Most of this stuff only God can fix. This is about us being there for each other, waiting on the fix to come. All right? So, so that's what I'm saying. If you're one of those parents, you got a church family that should be surrounding you. Church family, we need to be surrounding them. In fact, let's, let's do that right now. Will you pray with me? Bow your heads. And, and parents, I want to give you two options. I, I don't want to embarrass anybody or put anybody on spot. I can promise you there's not a camera on you like there is on me right now. But I know some people are afraid of, they fear exposure, and some people fear Movement. All right. So if you fear movement, like I don't want to go to one of the crosses and talk to anybody, I don't want to move around, I'm just going to ask you to stand up in a minute. And then I'm going to ask the people around you to just kind of gather around you and pray. Those of you that are gathering around, don't ask them anything. If they want to share something about what's going on in their life with their kid, that's fine. If they don't, just put your hands on them and pray and tell them those things. If you fear exposure, like I don't want to stand up, everybody around me is going to see me, then just... Walk toward the back, walk around the back, go to one of these crosses, there's going to be an elder, there's going to be a deacon, okay? Our pastors are men, our deacons are men and women. You get with whoever you are most comfortable with and and you, you either talk to them or you just say, I need prayer. We're going to do that for you right now. Father in heaven, give us this moment to minister to each other, to be there for each other, especially in moments... Lord, I I can't imagine. A a hurting child, even when that harm has come at their own hand, is is one of the most devastating things for us. And so, Lord, give give us the temerity, the ability, the courage to go to each other. And may we be the kind of church that just puts our arms around people and prays. And, Lord, may we see miracles through this. May we see kids come home. May we see kids come into the kingdom. I'm just thinking everything we know about the Trinity these days comes from a metaphor given to us by St. Augustine of Hippo a 5th century African bishop who went buck wild and probably slept with every woman in the city and did everything but he had a mama named Monica who prayed him into the kingdom and we know his name today because of a parent that did not get off their knees. So Father, give us that perseverance on behalf of our kids today, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.